This episode of Case Acquaint contains subject matter that may be disturbing to some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everybody, welcome back to Case Acquaint. The episode you're about to listen to is going to be very close to episode 1 of our Lumberton series, I'm recording new audio for those of you who have sent us messages or posted comments saying that you can't hear the audio. For some reason, some people can and some people can't. So for those listeners who can't, I'm recording a new one. I hope it works. We'll see. I appreciate your patience. You know, we're a pretty new podcast and none of us are experts at anything. Uh, Thank you for hanging in there with us and thank you for your feedback. We appreciate it. So, on with the show. Today, we're going to tackle the unsettling story of death and disappearance in the notorious town of Lumberton, North Carolina. So first, we're going to address a little background on Lumberton and Robeson County. It's considered rural, but easily accessible due to the major roadways which cut straight through the area. The authorities in Lumberton are overwhelmed with the amount of crime in their town, and other agencies have provided some limited help for particular cases, but obviously not enough. Lumberton has undergone hardships of unimaginable magnitude over the years, and recovery is elusive. Robeson County has a long, sad history of drug use and poverty. Every year, it regularly vies for the title of poorest county in North Carolina. 30% of the population live below the poverty line, and one in three residents collects food stamps. It also competes for the highest violent crime rate over all other counties. With I-95 traveling straight up through the center of Lumberton, it's no wonder that drugs are a major factor in the cycle of poverty, violence, and crime there. But it gets worse. Over the last 20 years or so, There have been more than a couple of incidents in which law enforcement itself has been at the center of some of the largest scandal-ridden drug-related busts, and I don't mean as the arresting officers. Can you imagine a county of just about 135,000 people having 22 deputies being charged with things like kidnapping, distribution of cocaine, and money laundering? The sheriff himself in prison? In terms of deaths from drugs, when someone in any troubled area of North Carolina wants to make a conversational impact, they compare their area's drug-related deaths to those of Robeson County. The gangs in Robeson County are numerous. There are over 60 of them. They deal in drugs, guns, stolen items, prostitution, and human trafficking. Just a couple of months ago, the FBI arrested 120 people nationwide, including in Lumberton. During a three-day long bust, during a three-day long bust, 84 minors were saved from trafficking. The youngest was a three-month-old baby being offered up for sex for $600. Regarding deaths and homicides, well, you don't have to look too hard for news reports on that over the years. As to the neighborhood in which the three bodies we're going to talk about were found, it's full of abandoned houses and swaths of overgrown vegetation. These shadowy, dispirited alleys and streets are obvious attractions to prostitutes and drug dealers. 
a large majority of the properties in East Lumberton are abandoned due to Hurricane Matthew, which hit some areas of North Carolina hard with flooding. Many of the homeowners in the area are waiting for a buyout from FEMA, since they're now located in floodplains, so they aren't going to spend any money on these properties at all. And sadly, we have very few details about these cases, but we're going to review everything the authorities have released and that we can find out about each one, and hopefully someday someone will start talking. Because one thing almost everyone agrees on is that at least some of these cases are surely related. If you find someone who knows about one case, they'll probably know what happened to the rest of them, or at least a couple. But right now, nobody's claiming to know anything. So with not much going for it economically, with an education system almost devoid of meaningful resources, and with a historically corrupt local government, which, by the way, has been said to harbor disdain for dead prostitutes and overdose victims, this atmosphere is where each person profiled found themselves on several fateful days in Lumberton, North Carolina. Rhonda Jones on April 8, 2017, a naked and decomposing body was found inside a garbage can at 702 East 5th Street. It was the body of 36-year-old Rhonda Jones. It's not clear if her clothing was later found and secured as evidence. There are no additional details released about the manner or cause of Rhonda's death. But if the body was characterized as badly decomposed, could have been either in the liquefying state or maybe even the skeletal state. While it may make determination of cause and manner more difficult, it doesn't usually take this long. She was the mother of five and the grandmother of one. Her family said that they hadn't heard from her for about three weeks. Rhonda lived on Troy Drive. According to her family, Rhonda had a drug problem and she had tried several times to get help for it. She had been to college and at times had held professional jobs. Even though Rhonda had addiction issues, she kept in touch with her family and she had no significant criminal history. On the same day, April 8th, as Rhonda Jones was found, another decomposed body was found in an abandoned home located within walking distance. That was at 505 Peachtree Street. It was 32-year-old Kristen Bennett. The same questions remain about the death and disposal scene as in Rhonda's case. No manner or cause was ever released. No material evidence said to have been gathered. Now this house is a regular spot for drug users and prostitutes to congregate almost daily according to some. So why did reporting the bodies take so long? Was Kristen Bennett's body hidden inside the house in a place where visitors wouldn't have known it was there? Or were people aware it was there, but nobody notified authorities? In the heat and humidity of a North Carolina spring, I don't know how long a dead body could go unnoticed, at least in some way. The temperatures fluctuated between the mid-50s and 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Kristen had lived on the 1900 block of Eastwood Terrace, which is a public housing development of duplexes. We know very little about Kristen. She might have had some misdemeanor criminal activity and possibly had lived in nearby Maxton, North Carolina for a time, but there was very little information available about Kristen at first. That led us to ask the question, has Kristen Bennett been forgotten by the authorities? It sure seems so. 
On June 3rd, a teenager discovered the decomposed body of 28-year-old Megan Oxendine behind a house at 608 East 8th Street. It's concealed in some overgrown shrubbery. Megan had been bound, gagged, and bloodied, according to a news report. Megan and Rhonda were actually friends, and back in April, Megan was interviewed on TV for a WNCN story about the discovery of Rhonda's body. During the interview in which Megan's name and face were both used, Megan described Rhonda as a sweet and good person. Megan's mom stated that after doing that interview, Megan was attacked and her hair was cut, but Megan claimed she couldn't see who attacked her. Megan lived at the 700 block of Dwight Road in Lumberton. She was last seen by her boyfriend's roommate on the Wednesday prior, which was May 31st. She was apparently going out to find a fix. Her sister said about her, She was funny, she was crazy, outgoing, and she was fun to be around. We hung out all the time before we actually lived together, all of us, me and my husband and her and her boyfriend. A lot of people loved her, they really did, said her sister. There are similarities between the first two bodies, according to the police. First, they were badly decomposed. Second, the bodies had little to no physical trauma, the police said. Also, there's a local rumor that a man and at least two other women were somehow involved with the death of Rhonda and maybe Kristen, too. That man was attacked shortly after their bodies were found. Then a few months later, the man was shot at the same public housing development at which Kristen was said to live. Finally, this guy just can't seem to avoid trouble. He was arrested in November of 2017 on some drug-related charges. There's no indication that any authorities were looking at him as a suspect, which is why he'll not be named today. But that just goes to show you how Lumberton is. The police would have very little trouble figuring out who everybody in town thinks commits some of these crimes. Because people aren't always as secretive in small towns as one would think. What about the similarities between all three bodies? We're going to suggest about eight, but there are probably more. First, they were all moved and or manipulated by another person, so someone definitely knows something. Second, they were said to have been either addicts or prostitutes or both. Third, they were found within the same general vicinity of the town, where drug usage and prostitution is carried out in and around abandoned houses. Fourth, all three, the manner and cause of death, are being withheld from the public. Fifth, none of these victims were reported missing. Six, they all knew each other. Seven, while it had been said they were addicts and or prostitutes, none of these victims had any serious criminal history that we could find. They might have had some misdemeanors, but not many. We don't need to go through what we did find, but we couldn't find anything violent. Eight, well, okay, this might not be a similarity, but there's no surveillance footage. Could it be due to the delay in discovery of the bodies? Many DVRs keep footage for 30 days. I'd like to know if investigators visited the nearby businesses and looked for anyone who may have had a surveillance camera installed on their property. Don't tell me that in a neighborhood that's rife with drugs, nobody has surveillance cameras on their properties. That footage could explain when they were out and about in a nearby convenience or grocery stores and who accompanied them. Those are the similarities we found. Now, feel free to post your thoughts about the similarities and differences and what you think might have happened to these three ladies. Now we're going to talk about the people who have recently disappeared from Lumberton. 
First, we have Cynthia Jacobs. She was last seen sometime in July of 2017. According to some online reports of statements by a family member, Cynthia, who also went by the name Twister, was the last person to see Megan Oxendine. The family member also said that although Cynthia was given a place to stay by family, she preferred a more independent life. She was said to struggle with drug addiction. Additionally, there have been lots of comments by locals on news articles stating about how they liked Cynthia, a.k.a. Twister, and they expressed hope that she's found safe. There have been questions from some asking why the two cases I'm about to get to have been all over the media, but sadly, Cynthia's has not. We could accuse authorities in the media of not caring about Cynthia because of her lifestyle or her overall situation, but is that the real truth? It appears that family and friends didn't know Cynthia had disappeared until at least a month afterwards. It wasn't out of character for Cynthia to be out of touch for a period of time, so it's only natural that the alarm wasn't raised immediately. That doesn't mean police and the media shouldn't be expected to publicize her disappearance just as much as the next two cases, but they shouldn't be vilified either. The police do claim to be looking for her, and she's included in a reward of $5,000 being offered by a local company, Mountaire Farms, for her safe return. Cynthia has brown hair and eyes. She's 5'6", and she weighs about 110 pounds. She has a tattoo of the word Chris on her chest. Eric Montrell Evans was last seen at 4.39 in the afternoon of July 27, 2017, near Hedge Drive off a of main road, West 5th Street, in Lumberton. West 5th Street is one block from I-95 to which it runs parallel. There are lots of businesses there, like fast food restaurants and dollar stores. If he was on Hedge Drive, which is a couple blocks from West 5th Street, he would have disappeared from a residential address or there's a field directly across from Hedge Street, but we have found what may be conflicting information about his last known location because it's been said that he was last seen on video surveillance and no details about where that was, though. According to Eric's social media, which seemed somewhat outdated, he claimed to belong to a gang and he dealt drugs. But there are some comments elsewhere by others saying that he had a job. Anyway, Eric turned 22 three days after his disappearance. In the past, he's gone by the nickname Insane Evans and Derealist Sosa. On August 3rd, the Sheriff's Department performed a helicopter search. The police believe someone local has something to do with Eric's disappearance, and the family has been actively looking for him since the day he went missing. Not weeks, not days. It was by the next day. So he kept in touch with his family and lots of people in the community have been worried about him and claim to care about him. They know this is out of character. We don't know what he was doing for a living. He had a new baby and was in a relationship with the baby's mother. On October 9th, a body was found, but it turned out to not be Eric's. Eric is six foot tall. He's 22 years old. He has shoulder length dreads with a gray patch of hair and gold front teeth. He also has been known to wear two gold-toned chains. He has a tattoo across his chest, one on the lower right arm and one on top of his shoulder. Don't forget that Mountaire Farms is including Eric in their $5,000 reward. 
Next, we have Abby Patterson, 20 years old at the time she went missing, who was home visiting after going to rehab for heroin addiction. She hadn't lived in Lumberton for three years. She told her mom that she was going to the store and it was about 11.30 a.m. on September 5th. 2017. She was wearing brown shorts and a white shirt. Abby was close with her family and she spoke with them every day, even when she wasn't living with them. Now authorities say they know the person she was last seen with, a man whose brown Buick she was seen getting into over on East 9th Street. They said they spoke to him. They won't say whether or not he is a person of interest. The FBI is now involved in helping to find out what happened to Abby. Also, the family's put up a $5,000 reward, and same local company has put up another $5,000. So there's a $10,000 reward offered up for information on where Abby is located. Abby Patterson is five foot seven. She has brown hair and brown eyes, and she weighs about 130 pounds. She has a birthmark on her left thigh and a bird tattoo on her shoulder. Again, we have similarities and differences. Cynthia was not immediately reported missing, and in fact, we don't know what actual day she was reported missing. Eric and Abby were reported immediately. All six of these folks have a history of either using or small-time selling of drugs. Finally, like our three other victims, nobody's talking, especially the police. In a small town where everyone seems to know everyone, all of a sudden, nobody seems to know what happened. Why? So now that you've heard all the details we could find about Rhonda, Kristen, Megan, Cynthia, Abby, and Eric, please note that we're not passing judgment on them by reporting details about their lives that one would not particularly prefer to have the public hear. We're sensitive to the dignity and legacy of each and every one of these victims. Struggling with addiction, selling sex, or selling drugs does not make someone a bad person, but it may put them at some level of risk because in that world, there are many predators and there are many risks. We will see as this series progresses that there are those who may not have had anything to do with the world of drugs and prostitution, yet they're also victimized. Their lives have value, but honestly, no more value to their loved ones than any single other victim of violent crime. Some have raised the possibility that the simple answer to a few of these cases is that the victims overdosed and the others involved did not want to be associated with that in fear of some sort of punishment. Well, here we look for justice. If, for example, a dealer sold one of our victims a deadly concoction of heroin and some other substance, then they contributed to that death. If someone improperly disposed of a body or if they concealed a body, a cause, or manner of someone's death, that's a crime and they should be brought before a court. Should another member of the public seek retribution? Only by notifying authorities. After all, we're all entitled to due process. We don't want to have what happened in Kelly, North Carolina on December 23rd to happen anywhere else. There, a man shot another man because he mistakenly thought the other man had stolen his boat. So here we focus on showing respect for our victims and missing as they are human beings. In order to seek justice for victims, we need all the information about them we can get. Again, we understand they had family and friends and lives of value. 
That brings me to something I think is an important illustration of what can happen if police are not held accountable for the work they do. A man by the name of John Allure, whose sister was a victim of violent crime decades ago, has been producing a podcast over the past year or so, which was called Who Killed Teresa Allure? We'll have it linked on our site if you want to check it out. Now, he gave me permission to quote him, and I asked for it because he perfectly sums up why it's so important to tell these stories to make sure these victims are not forgotten. This is going to be from the episode that he entitled Joanne Dorian and Chantal Tremblay, WKT 14, March 16th, 2017. It's the episode that he uploaded on March 16th of 2017. The context of this paraphrased statement I'm about to present is a response to people who make comments and send emails telling him, you should really stop this. This isn't healthy. Why don't you just give up? It's been so long. You're never going to get any closure. Plus, aren't you worried you're exploiting these other women who were murdered when you talk about them? He says, We were always kept in the dark. We were told, you know, that things aren't connected, that nothing could be done, and then further appalling circumstances where evidence is destroyed, etc. I'm not exploiting anyone, and usually, you know, that is used as a tactic to try to make me feel guilty so that I will shut up, which is not going to happen. John goes on to say that he understands if a family isn't as gung-ho about finding out what happened, he respects their choice. He says, to begin with, that is flat, the only instance where I can feel that I'm not, that it's not that I'm exploiting someone, but that I feel sensitive about the case because they're not quite on board with it as I am. However, he goes on, I cannot untie my sister's case from these other women. We are inextricably linked. We're linked through the geographic profiling and we'll forever be linked in that manner. So I can be respectful that they don't want to be involved. I wish they were, he says. They have asked to be left alone, and I leave them alone. You know, we often hear as a cliché that families in these instances need closure. We don't need closure. We need justice. I won't speak for anyone else, but I find the term closure to be deeply offensive and a cliché, and something someone says when they don't know what else to say. But closure to me, whenever I hear it, is another way of saying, Will you just shut up about this stuff? What will allow you to no longer talk about it so we don't have to hear about it? And I'm saying, well, that's not closure. If you want me to stop talking about this, what I require is justice. Justice for me is either solving one of these crimes or bringing the police agencies who through malfeasance or ineptitude or plain carelessness or inadequacies in training, I don't care what it is, holding them accountable. That in itself would be a sense of justice, and that is purely flat what I'm looking for. That's the end of the quote, and I did paraphrase, so if you're interested in his outlook, please go check out his super informational and very real life podcast. It's also a high-quality body of information. There are no gimmicks, nothing there to entertain you. He's putting out the information that he has, and as a reminder, his goal is justice. It's from the perspective of someone whose family member did not matter to police because they thought she was a drug addict. They were wrong, but that shouldn't have mattered. They bungled the entire investigation 
and there are several other victims whose cases are absolutely related to hers, and they were also bungled. I'm going to be clear on another thing. I respect and admire our law enforcement agencies. I support them. I know they have a tough job, and I'm sure that every day they probably deal with many people who put themselves and others at risk. But they're getting paid to do a job. They're entrusted with all the information that's available, and we need to rely on them to use it. Go after people they believe are connected. Do whatever they have to do to put pressure on people to talk. Don't ignore family or the public or the media, because when you do that, people are going to start trying to find out on their own, and that's what's happening right now in Lumberton. These families need answers. They deserve them. They need to see the people involved brought into court. They need to know where their missing loved ones are located, so if they want closure, they can choose it, knowing whether or not their loved one is alive or dead. And those who are dead, finding out who had something to do with it. It's not a question of if, it's a question of who. If any of those folks overdosed, or that particular instance of drug use killed them, fine. We still want the people involved to be brought to justice. You don't put someone in a trash can. So I don't really care if the toxicology reports came back on Kristen and Rhonda, that they had some fentanyl, or they overdosed, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Someone still undressed them and concealed their bodies. They didn't want them found immediately, and they didn't want any attention on themselves. Now, a little quick update to this episode. I'm pretty much to the end of the original episode, but I think it's important to mention that not too long ago, I think it was around the beginning of April 2018, we heard that the FBI was going door-to-door in Lumberton, asking people questions in the neighborhood that these three ladies were found dead. Now, we haven't heard anything since then. The Lumberton Police Department and the Robeson County Sheriff's Office They've both been very quiet. We haven't had one update in months on any of these disappearances or deaths. And I want to know why. They say the medical examiner, it takes them six months to do an autopsy. Well, they've had six months. They've had more than six months. They've had over a year now in some cases. So we want answers. Why is it that in a place like Lumberton, where everyone seems to know everyone, that these investigators are not held accountable. Is it because everybody's related? Is it because everybody knows everyone and no one wants to hurt each other's feelings? Is that why the FBI has to come in? Usually the FBI needs to come in when there's a scandal or when the local agency isn't doing what they're supposed to do. Why would the FBI be in Lumberton to try to find out what happened to three dead prostitutes. That's the question I'm asking. The Lumberton Police Department doesn't seem to care about these dead prostitutes. Robeson County Sheriff's Department doesn't seem to care about these dead prostitutes. Why does the FBI care about them? Have you ever heard of the FBI caring about three dead prostitutes? So you have to ask yourself, what's the FBI doing down in Lumberton? Anyway, if you go to our website, we have pictures, a map, links, more information on these cases. Feel free to discuss this case over on our Facebook page, on our YouTube channel, other social media, wherever you find us. We're on social media. You guys know how to find people on social media. Just look for Case Acquaint. That's us. 
Now, Episode 2 offers more details about this crime-ridden county, and in Episode 2, we travel a few miles up I-95 to explore more cases within the uniquely violent and poverty-stricken area that most people have never visited unless they stopped for gas on their way to someplace else. I'd like to thank John Allure for letting us quote and paraphrase excerpts of his March 16, 2017 podcast. Now, finally, if you have any information on these cases we spoke about today, please contact the Robeson County Sheriff's Department at 910-671-3100 or the Lumberton Police Department at 910-671-3845. And if you don't trust them, just contact the FBI. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon.